0: Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World weekly podcast. I'm Tammy Freeman. In this episode, we will hear from the author of a new biography of Stephen Hawking and also chat with the director of Brazil's Sirius Synchrotron Light Source. But first, a message from our sponsor.
1: This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society or ECS, which is an official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics and Physics World. Would you like to expand your understanding of electrochemical research? ECS's popular short course program begins in September, with their core course titled Fundamentals of Electrochemistry, Basic Theory, and Kinetic Methods. This course covers basic theory and application of electrochemical science. It's designed for people who want to gain a better understanding of electrochemical methods and research. ECS also offers four short courses during their fall meeting in October. Courses are only available virtually. Students receive significant short course registration discounts. For more information, or to register, please visit www.electrochem.org forward slash education and click Short Course to learn more.
0: The cosmologist Stephen Hawking published A Brief History of Time in 1988 and quickly became the world's most famous physicist. Since his death in 2018, Hawking's legacy is being evaluated, and Physics World's Laura Hiscott has caught up with a biographer who has focused on the cosmologist's public persona.
2: I'm joined down the line from New York by Charles Seif, a science writer and journalist who has recently written a book called Hawking, Hawking, The Selling of a Scientific Celebrity. The book explores the life of Stephen Hawking and asks whether his public image was an accurate picture of who he was, or whether it was a product of Hawking's gift for self-promotion. Welcome to the podcast, Charles.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: I'm really interested to know what made you want to write this book in the first place.
3: Well, I'm uh, at heart a science journalist and i uh, covered physics for many, many years. Uh, I wrote for a new scientist as well as science, and I've written a number of books including uh, one about cosmology and one about information theory. And those are, of course, the areas where Hawking, it, it, it's his stomping grounds. So I encountered him quite a bit. And uh, when he died and I saw the obituaries and people talking about him, it was really interesting how all of the discussion that I had had uh, with with physicists about what he had done, and what his Uh, his contribution really was, was was kind of papered over. And it was was the complexity of the human being was disappearing. Uh, And I felt that I had to preserve it like a historian, just to kind of get a sense of who the real person was before the image completely obscured uh, what the being was.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. And you mentioned that you encountered his research a lot. I was interested to know if you ever met him in person at all.
3: Yes, I met him a number of times. Uh, half a dozen times. Uh, I never actually got an exclusive interview with him. Um, I was always in a press gaggle and had to submit questions on index cards. Um, So I never had the privilege of sitting down with him uh, and having an audience.
2: And of course, the submitting questions in advance was necessary because um, he needed to be able to prepare what he was going to say in advance. He couldn't really say something Straight away, in response to a question live the the book mentions actually that after his tracheostomy, he could communicate at i think about fifteen words per minute at best, and this got much slower over time and I was wondering um what it was like writing a biography of someone who had so much difficulty communicating and whether you think anyone really could know him very well
3: yeah no it it I had a um tremendous amount of empathy for the struggles that he went through and not just the struggles that he himself had as a result of his his condition, but also difficulty that it put his family through and his friends through. And the fact that in some ways it emphasized, it brought out elements in his personality, some of which were, were not terribly attractive. He was incredibly stubborn and uh, very very hard to convince that he was wrong. There was a, a, a great deal of ego, but, it, but at the same time, some of that was core to how he survived the way he did with his motor neuron disease. That his daughter had this um was once interviewed when she was young she was a young teenager and she she was complaining about her father's stubbornness and how how he's under but but she said but I guess you have to be that way if, if, with disease. So it, it's it's difficult, uh, but, but you can't disentangle the condition from the human being. And there's a really interesting part about it. There's, there's this multifaceted element, and the disease affected those facets in many ways.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. And that's really interesting that, in a way, it's almost like the things that we admire so much about him, the way that he was able to achieve so much despite these challenges it's like that and his you know the more unsavory aspects of his personality are almost like two sides of the same coin sometimes they yeah. they went hand in hand absolutely um, and
3: it, it, there's also kind of a core paradox or uh, a central irony uh to his life that he wanted not to be known for his disability he wanted to be thought of as any other person he wanted to be much at the same scale as other physicists, but of course his disease did make him different. It made his fame um, much—I mean, it, it increased it tremendously, and uh, it led to some extent to his ex- success. And it also led to some considerations, especially early in his career. And he knew that. So, so there was this great—I mean, he he made a Faustian bargain in some ways with with the brief history of time, in that he knew that there was going to be this. Exploitation of his condition to make him famous and to sell his book, and that almost uh, obviated his lifelong attempt to be thought of as not a person with a disease uh, who happens to do physics, but a physicist who has this disease on the side. And so it, that changed the order of those things. And he, it's one of the, it's one of the things I think kind of is sad about him is that he always wanted to transcend his disease and yet his fame was dependent upon it
2: yeah yeah that's really interesting and especially I think in the book there's actually um, a story that you tell where one of his friends actually warns him about this and and says if you go with the bigger publishers rather than the university publisher they'll probably use your disability to market it and so he kind of had to accept
3: that the the, the, quote, the actual quotation, and it, uh, using kind of the deliberately crude language, he said, uh, they're going to say, aren't cripples marvelous? And so the idea of putting him as a circus act uh, was first and foremost. And, and I think Hawking went into this with his eyes open. He knew that this was what was going to happen. And he made that decision and it formed this latter half of his life. His celebrity was the man in the wheelchair as opposed to the
2: artist. That's really interesting. And it also, uh, your book also talks about um, some other reasons as well as his disability for why he he might have become so famous, um, including his publicity stunts. And also, I think it mentions the, the way that the expectations of celebrity have changed and how it kind of suited his personality in a way. And I was wondering if there is something that you think um, might be the main reason why he became so famous or is it really not possible to pinpoint a main factor
3: it's it's one of those uh curious trails through life where any one thing could have disrupted uh that so there's a lot of contributing factors beyond his his amazing stoicism in the face of his discipline really a, an inspiration to many uh i mean he, he never complained about his law um uh He had a incredible sense of humor. He was very dry and self-deprecating. But at the same time, he also he had a really strong sense of marketing himself and creating an image for himself that he walked a very fine line, comparing himself to Newton and Einstein and Galileo, which which is almost no one could get away with that. And at the same time poo-pooing any uh, comparison between uh, Newton and Einstein and Gallo. So he, he cultivated these comparisons while holding it at arm's length. So he was able to maintain this this very humble and down-to-earth personality and yet still feed the ego and the and the kind of the, the burnish his image which is very few people could pull that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, definitely. And do you think actually that you mentioned that you know, no one else could really get away with making those comparisons between themselves and Einstein and Newton and Galileo. Do you think that, with that, and also some of his other behavior, he got away with it a little bit because because he was this legend, this myth in in the public psyche?
3: Yeah, I, I think that is that is part of it. I, I, uh, one thing we haven't mentioned so far is: I mean, he was a brilliant physicist, and but. Uh, that there's no question that he was a a physicist of first rank, but that alone doesn't give people this license. Um, I think part of it, especially early on, I mean, he he Richard Feynman also had this ability to kind of play the crowd and to kind of inject something at just the right moment that makes people think he's absolutely brilliant. And early in Hawking's career, he cultivated that, and he he became viewed as a wunderkind kind of this this otherworldly person and that compounded with the early stages of his disease that really helped enhance that image uh, so yeah it's 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 really interesting to see how kind of um built that over the years and it changed for me andman uh, uh, Feynman, Feynman also had this gift uh, mari Gelman was every bit a Uh, genius as Richard Feynman, but when people think of the archetypal genius, Feynman kind of wins out. Similarly, I think with Hawking, Hawking was able to kind of have that Feynman-esque, and I I think actually is is, uh, Hawking's stint at Caltech, which where he overlapped with Feynman was really formative in his life and personality and outlook, and and his physics as well, actually. So um, there's a lot of interesting interaction personality-wise between the two even though they didn't i couldn't find records of a lot of discussion between the two i know that they had several and were hanging out together a bit but it, it wasn't as extensive as i was hoping to see
2: yeah that's interesting and um and also i think you mentioned how he kind of um started building this myth from very early in his career. And there was one story which I remember from the book um, where he challenged Fred Hoyle, who was at the time, you know, the, the best known perhaps um, astronomer. And he challenged him publicly in front of other scientists. I really enjoyed that that story. Um, that was really interesting. Yeah,
3: yeah. No, and, and it, it was in some ways it was kind of cheating because Hawking went in forearmed because he had he had gotten an early draft manuscript that no one else had seen um, and had done some calculations to show that there was an error in the calculations. And so when Hoyle presented this for the first time publicly, Hawking stood up and it, he was on a cane and kind of gawky looking and already looked like an unusual character and said, your calculations are wrong, they diverge. And Hawking, Hoyle was baffled. How, how could you possibly know this? And Hawking said, I calculated it. with the information that he did it on the spot. Uh, and so it was very much, everyone thought that uh, this this young man was a phenom like no one had, else, no one had seen, when in fact he had done like anyone else, kind of spent uh, several weeks churning through the equations to find the flaw.
2: Wow! yeah, so it really shows that you know, right from the start, there were these aspects of his character, he, you know, engineering these sorts of dramatic situations to draw attention. And yeah, of course, that that would have helped to build the myth around him. And um, yeah, I, I was interested, actually, to know whether you think that part of the reason that this myth was able to build up so much was because actually, the public really wanted to believe it. I think, you know, there was something Attractive about it, we wanted to believe that this was the best physicist ever, and he had this human story. Um, So we participated in it.
3: Yeah, I I think I think we, as a public, create heroes in our own image, create a personality that may or may not match what the person we imbue it with actually had. And with Hawking, I I think Einstein was kind of another mythological character. Was seen as the ultimate intellect, but as as go back to Thales, uh, people for people to really embrace a a superior intellect, they have to be kind of otherworldly and harmless, not kind of embedded in the world. So Einstein was had his hair must, and he 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 always had was rumpled like a. He he may be the no relativity, but he can't tie his shoes. Sort of, of. And I think that is the sort of archetype that people need for the ultimate disembodied intellect. And I think that Hawking fell very much into that category because his physical disability—the the person who is the least physical threat—that kind of the, the the someone who is uh, a disembodied mind, and, and because, especially because his robotic voice that he was he came across as almost not human. And people treated him sometimes as almost not human, or even as a toddler, kind of this this combination of uh, totally helpless and yet ultimately I mean, superior. It's this weird contradiction, and yet we were able to kind of put those images together. And I, th- I think that's part of the uniqueness of him, that he had these elements that people could put together and stick them together and create this this character when when of course either of those is true that he was a adult rational human being not a toddler not not someone who is who is stuck in his, in his uh body and he, he was very able to kind of make his will known to people despite kind of uh within this mechanism uh that he had to use to communicate so yeah, I, I think I think that the part of the reason that we we uh, had this image is because he, he fits contradictory archetypes, and we don't we never really question that we we. It makes no sense for all of these things to be true at the same time. He can't be the world's best communicator and not be able to communicate at the same time. It's, it's,
2: <laughs> no, of course we, we not. It. Yeah, yeah. And do you think actually going on from that that there's a broader conversation to be had about. The public and our relationship with scientist figures that we look up to in this way yeah
3: i think I think celebrity uh in general fits poorly on science um, celebrity i mean really is the act of imbuing a symbolism on a person, and science is very much attempting to get below symbolism to underlying truth and so. In some ways the moment that a scientist accepts a celebrity, uh, he or she is play acting in a way that is not truthful to their profession. I I, I don't mean to say that this is that it's immoral or, or wrong, but it it just the, the the needs of maintaining celebrity are in exactly the opposite direction of being a good scientist, I think.
2: That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I wanted to ask you if you have, because the book is um, peppered with lots of really interesting anecdotes. Some of them are funny, some of them are very humanizing. And I was wondering if you have any favorites?
3: Yeah, I mean, actually, the most moving in some ways is is uh, Ray LaFlamme, uh, who was one of those uh, graduate students. Uh, and he was a graduate student during the brief history of time period. And they had an argument within um science and Laflamme was right and it was very hard for him to convince hawking that he was wrong and he saw hawking for all his flaws he saw the difficult personality he saw the the fight he got into he he had to work around him and yet his adoration for his former advisor it was incredible and, and it turns out that laflam was diagnosed uh with lung cancer Prognosis was not great and I mean, he's, he's uh, I understand he's in recovery he's doing he's doing well, but he has a picture of walking um, mm-hmm. the the famous space where he's in zero gravity and floating on his wall and he told me he looks at that whenever he needs inspiration because he figured if and he used, he used the term uh, the blue t- uh, term a bugger if that bugger uh, as long as he can I, I can, I can do another 20 years.
2: <laughs> wow. And so
3: there's this, this kind of warmth and real real adoration and inspiration that comes from this figure, despite all of his flaws. And that's what's so inspirational about him. I think, I think the, the inspirational element does not die when you see him as a, as a person rather than the same.
2: No. In fact, if anything, I think it could be enhanced because you realised this was a human being, this was not transcendent of humans, and yet he achieved all the amazing things that he did. Exactly. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Charles. Oh, thank
3: you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun.
2: You can read more about Charles's book Hawking Hawking on the Physics World website. Look out for a review with the title, How Stephen Hawking Became the World's
0: Most Famous Physicist. Next, Physics World's Hamish Johnston makes a virtual journey to Brazil to meet the director of Latin America's only synchrotron light source.
1: In 2020, Sirius, a fourth-generation storage ring light source, was switched on at the Brazilian Synchrotron Light Laboratory in Campinas, which is about 100 kilometres northwest of Sao Paulo. I'm joined down the line from Brazil by the lab's director, Harry Westfall Jr., for an update about Sirius and what we can expect from the facility in the future. Hi, Harry. Welcome to the podcast.
4: Hello. Thank you for having me here. It's a great pleasure.
1: Thanks for being with us, Harry. The, the first experiments on Sirius were done a year ago, or at least they started a year ago, in July 2020. How is the synchrotron's first year of operations gone?
4: Well, since the first experiments that we did on Luna protein crystallography, which is a technique we use to uh, uncover the three-dimensional structure of biomolecules like proteins. We uh, opened for user commissioning, the same in beamline, and we had uh, users coming especially for force tasks on fight of COVID. So there's a network of Brazilian researchers involved in this research. And uh, since then, this beamline Uh, was open for user commissioning, and several structures have been deposited in what we call protein database uh, of structures. Uh, Also, we had uh, the installation of uh, other beamlines and technical commission that started. Um, And uh, we currently have uh, six beamlines in an advanced stage of installation and commissioning. And I can describe in, in more detail what they mean. Since the beginning of our operations, uh, we've been, obviously, this is a Greenfield machine. So, we, uh everything is new from the machine and the beam lines. And uh, since the first beam that we had in early 2020, actually, the end of 2019 was when we had the first stored beam in the machine. Uh, quickly after, we had... Uh, demonstration of a micro-CT, uh, a micro-computer uh, tomography using white beam. But the first real experiment was the one you described in July. And um, since then, I, I can describe several improvements that we had in the facility. Well, first of all, more or less 50% of the all the, uh, let's say, electron beam time uh, was splitted in between the beamline commissioning and also studies in the machine, because they are both going uh, simultaneously. At the same time as we build and construct the and commission the beam lines, we're also commissioning the storage ring and its accelerators. So roughly, we can say that half of the time is dedicated to beam lines, and the other half is dedicated to machine studies, realignment, and also open tunnel, what we call open tunnel uh, the time, for installation of components inside the storage ring. Uh, In a year, we went from, let's say, about 10 milliamps, that's the current on the storage ring, to about uh, 70 milliamps, uh, which means basically the amount of uh, radiation that we get in experiment is directly proportional to this current. So we've been boosting the amount of current which should go up to 350 milliamp in the near future. But we need a special device to make that next jump to a higher current. Also, we had uh, installation since the Manaka beam line, this protein crystallography. We have uh, installed also other beamlines like uh, KTDT beamline, which is a coherent uh, diffraction imaging beamline. Karnauba beamline, which is a nanoprobe X-ray beamline. Uh, and EMMA beamline, which is an extreme condition uh, with multiple analysis methods. Um, we also had EP uh, which is a uh, inelastic soft X-ray scattering beamline, and MOGNO, which is a high-energy tomography. They are all in different stages of installation, and they've been moving on in their installation and commissioning. But in early 2021, we also had uh, a realignment. Actually, it was the first... A detailed alignment of the storage ring to achieve the spec parameters for this uh, emittance and the stability of the storage ring. So in early March this year, we resumed activities on the beamlines and keeping that ratio that I explained, about 50-50 between machine and open tunnel and beamline studies. In Katerete beam beamline, we had the first successful uh, diffraction imaging, which is ongoing in commissioning. In EMA, by the end of uh, the, the year, we had the first uh, high-pressure diffraction studies. We could see materials change their structure under high pressures. And in Karnauba, we also had the first uh, scanning image with uh, uh, X-ray fluorescence with a submicron beam. Um, all in all, uh, we are also starting installation of new beam lines. And we expect by early next year to have about nine beam lines installed and in different stages of commissioning.
1: So Harry, you've mentioned some of the beam lines um, at Sirius. Um, can, you, can you give us some details of, uh, about some of the research uh, that is going to be done using these beam lines?
4: We typically like to divide the beam lines into um, scientific research themes. Uh, I think it makes it easier to understand their uh, scientific programs. So, Basically, uh, even though the beamlines can be, uh, uh, they are multipurpose and they can serve different areas of experiment, we have a a division on three main scientific topics. So biological and soft matter, hard condensed matter, and what we call heterogeneous and hierarchical matter. So in the biological matter, uh, we can describe five beamlines, essentially. Uh, Manaka, the one that first opened, that I just described. Is a structural biology uh, beamline for protein crystallography, uh, which is also complemented by small angle scattering in biology, Sapukaya beamline, and Cedro, which is a UV beamline dedicated uh, to circular dichroism. So, these three beamlines they basically uh, allow you to understand the, bio, the structure of biomolecules. They are complemented within this biological and soft matter division of beamlines. Uh, by the Imbuia beamline is an infrared imaging that goes from nano uh, infrared imaging to micro infrared imaging, and caterete beamline, one of the beamlines in commissioning now, uh, that allows you to do coherent diffraction imaging of uh, using X-rays, coherent X-rays of uh, cells and tissues, among other things. So this these five beamlines would basically compose what we call biological and soft matter division. Then the beamlines in so-called hard condensed matter, uh, are the ones mostly dedicated to understanding aspects of materials characterized by well-defined phase. So starting with EMMA, which was one of the beamlines dedicated to extreme conditions, essentially the scientific program is dedicated to understanding uh, material properties and phases under extreme conditions of pressure, temperature either very low temperature in sub-Kelvin or very high temperatures of mil- uh, mil- uh, thousands of Kelvin, uh, or high magnetic fields, up to uh, 10 Tesla magnetic fields. So within this beamline, we can map the microscopic structure of matter uh, and understand different phases. Now, on this phases, let's say st- uh, magnetic phases, we can look at uh, structural properties of ground state and, and, and the main state of the samples with a sub-Yab mind. So, it's a beamline dedicated to um, uh, C- magnetic measurement in detail. So, what does magnetism come from and how is it organized in the nanometer scale? Then, uh, from that, we have other two beamlines that are within the hard condensed matter dedicated to look at uh, excitations uh, in these uh, phases. So, EP beamline is a soft X ray RICS beamline uh, in elastic X ray scattering. So, basically, photo in, photon out. Experiments that you look at excitations, uh, typically uh, density fluctuations, spin fluctuations, and uh, and another beamline that is SAPE, that is dedicated to uh, basically angle resolved emission uh, spectroscopy. Uh, It's a technique used to um, draw uh, to probe the the band structure of material. So all in all, these four beamlines they compose what we call this uh, hard condensed matter program, and the third problem. Program, scientific program, is the hierarchical and heterogeneous matter. So we can find in this class materials that uh, their properties are due to their intrinsic heterogeneous structure, like soils, catalysts, batteries, or solar cells, so electrochemical systems. And uh, again, we have a pro in this program, we have a set of beam lines starting from MOGNO, which is a high-energy tomography beamline that gives you an overview, three-dimensional overview of the heterogeneities in these materials. And that is a, a zoom tomography beamline. So basically, can go down to 100 nanometer resolution within the beamline. And then you jump into Uba beamline. It's also one of the beamlines in commissioning that allows you to go to nanometer scale image, 3D image yet, of these materials. Now, these uh, two beamlines make images in the micrometer to the nanometer range and are complemented now by three other beamlines in this heterogeneous hierarchical matter program, which are uh, two of them uh, looking at the atomic structure of matter, either uh, crystalline matter, Pineda is one for uh, uh, X ray diffraction, and uh, Jatoba beamline, which is uh, a beamline for non crystalline arrangement, uh, uh, looking at the technique called pair PDF. These two beamlines allow you to look at mid-range information of organization, atomic organization. And finally, uh, X-ray absorption spectroscopy beamline, QUATI, the time-resolved beam line, uh, X-ray absorption spectroscopy, that allows you to go deeper into the questions of organization in the very short range, either ele- uh, you know uh, electronic structure in the very short range of this heterogeneous material. So these three programs cover basically the fourteen beamlines that we have foreseen uh, in this first phase of Sirius.
1: And and you you and your colleagues you've you've managed to get Sirius up and running in the middle of a pandemic. W- what were the challenges involved in 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 starting up a a major scientific facility um, during the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic?
4: Yeah. That, that's a very good question. In fact, I think. Very few um, facilities like that were uh, challenged to this point of uh, having installation of storage ring in beamlines and commissioning uh, mostly going on remotely. So to begin with, uh, we had to reduce the staff like everywhere else uh, to about uh, well, beginning in uh, less than one third of the staff was on site, and now we are still keeping about one third of the staff on site, and most of the staff is still working remotely. The the staff working uh, here in the lab are basically doing activities to allow the others to to be able to continue their activities. Uh, But obviously, this uh, is a big challenge for assembling and commissioning because typically facilities like that, they require, um, you know, different teams of mechanics, controls, vacuum, optics, all working together in the same space so that they can solve issues and resolve them as we go. Now, with the pandemics, we had to have very few people that uh, would, you know, Call the next team to come over and solve problems but never keeping more than uh, what is allowed by sanitary restrictions on site so this delays the process even though it was possible to continue this was uh, pretty much delayed a lot our our process slowed down our, our our evolution also supply chain um, the delays were were challenging because uh even though most of the components were produced in brazil Uh, We still relied a lot on uh, international suppliers, which were hit by the pandemic the same way. So this also imposed a very uh, uh, long restrictions of the different parts of equipment that we couldn't receive in due time for for the assembly. And finally, uh, budgetary restrictions also that uh, uh, science and technologies right now is currently having a a difficult time for funding in, in, in Brazil. And uh, this also made us make some choices of what would come first and later, so to administrate the budget that uh, we currently have. But all in all, we, I think we are being able to keep uh, the, the evolution of the facility so that we can start having the first uh, commissioning users as soon as possible.
1: Yeah, that's um that that that's quite an accomplishment, and um, Sirius is is one of the uh, the first fourth generation storage rings in the world, and and I believe it's the only synchrotron currently operating in Latin America. It, is the facility primarily for Brazilian science, or do you see it as an international facility that will benefit science in the Americas and and beyond?
4: Well, definitely, yeah. This is an international facility Uh, for uh, geographic reasons, obviously, uh, like our first synchrotron UVX, uh, most of uh, the scientists using this facility were coming from Brazil. I would say that about 80% of the scientists or or this range were Brazilian scientists and about 20% were uh, from abroad and mostly from Latin America. And uh, on those from Latin America, mostly from Argentina also. Uh, but it's yeah we we see it as an international facility like other synchrotrons are and uh, especially for Latin America I think that this will be a great opportunity. But to, we uh, in in the Americans even we've been discussing uh, opportunities of collaboration with different synchrotrons and and user communities. Uh, I may cite for instance uh, with the Canadian Light Source we have a very good interaction and uh, within a program for um agricultural and soil research, where we expect in the future to be able to uh you know train users from the two facilities complementary and uh, uh and i think more like more more agreements like this will will come in the future where uh, uh, a synchrotron community is is it's not so uh there are not so many synchrotrons in the world and typically they tend to be international uh facilities and and i think we will we hope to follow the same same path.
1: So, what's next for Sirius and the Brazilian Synchrotron Light Lab in general? Do you have any plans for any new facilities, such as an X-ray free electron laser?
4: Uh, yes, uh, we um, let me describe more or less in different terms. So, in, in the short term, for Sirius uh, is part uh, and is part of CNPM, which is a facility of four national laboratories, and uh, so we have different. Uh, programs also development uh, in the context of these laboratories um, and uh, in the short term uh, what we expect obviously is to increase the number of beam lines that's our first uh, at, at, at most uh, uh, objective and also development of um, accelerator technologies like insertion devices for Sirius and um, and so that we can cover the more challenging experiments. We also plan to have more complex infrastructure associated with the lab and enabling technologies for more science. I can cite you one discussion that is ongoing uh, to install beamlines with a biosafety level, a higher biosafety level, of like uh, level four, uh, and, a co- and couple it to, uh, to the series uh, beamlines so that we can cover, uh, you know, Biological sciences with the other labs in a different level than can be done uh, nowadays in the world. In the midterm, we still have upgrade roo- uh, room for upgrading uh, this uh, storage ring uh, and uh, improve its emittance. So I think that in the midterm, uh, we still have uh, plans for evolving the, the current synchrotron and uh, also uh, accelerator test uh, facilities uh, like uh, different uh, uh, linear accelerators and. Uh, Storage ring for for beam sciences. In the long term, yes, uh, we all consider uh, X-ray-free electron lasers as a possibility. Technology is evolving quite fast in this area. And, uh, yeah, it's something to be considered in the future of uh, CNPM.
1: Well, that's great, Harry. That's really interesting to hear about uh, Sirius and how things seem to be going very well, despite uh, problems like the pandemic. Thanks so much for for speaking to me today.
4: Thank you, Hamish. It was uh, my pleasure.
0: I'm afraid that's all the time we have left for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Harry Westphal Jr., Hamish Johnston, Laura Hiscott and Charles Seif for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jell. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, I can highly recommend the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. It's called Deflecting Asteroids and Exploring a Metal World. And it features two scientists who are involved in robotic missions to asteroids. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website or on your favourite podcast app.
1: Physics World.